Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to SheerClarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show for free, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hey everyone, Kevin McHugh here with another episode of Sheer Clarity, the podcast that talks to leaders and people who want to learn to be leaders by attraction. Today I have Mark Scheinberg. He's the founder and president of Goodwin University. First time I've had a university guy on my podcast and here's the good news. I've known Mark for 20 years. He is a dear friend. We've stayed friends over this time and I couldn't be happier to have him here As I always do, I like to get out of the way and let the guest tell us a little bit about Goodwin University and who it is, what it is, brag on it, because it basically has an amazing story. It's a 20-year story. And then after Mark sets the stage about who he is and what he does for his day job, we'll talk to him a little bit about his path and his life and some of the lessons that he can share with leaders out there listening. So to take it away, welcome Mark Scheinberg. Thanks so much, Kevin. So glad to be with you. To your listeners, if you haven't met Kevin in person, you are missing a real treat. He is one of the (laughs) iconic people that I know. And I haven't spoken to him up until recently for a lot of years. It is one of those things where it felt like we were getting together at a class reunion or something where you knew you knew somebody very, very deeply. And so it's been a real joy just to be back in touch with you, Kevin. Yes. Well, it's been a joy for me as well. One of the things that is the hallmark of our time together is within two minutes, we're laughing at something and it doesn't matter what it is. We treat it with great irreverence. There is a small story I could share where we've been in some fairly high level hoity-toity meetings and we might look across the room at each other and send a single that says, is this all that serious? And then both of us are stifling a moment of laughter. And I can't even look at him for the rest of the meeting or I break out. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's been, it's been obvious at times. I, that's all I have to say. It's like, it's like middle school all over again. Like You're children. sitting in you know, math class and just uh, don't belong there. This is just amazing. So talk to us and well, Talk to me. You know what? Talk to me. Just me. It's really lovely to reconnect. So just talk a little bit about now. Sure. No, and actually the university, you know, it is the personification of a lot of really, really good things. Let's talk a little bit about it. It's a newer university. It got its charter back in 1999. With that, you come into this thing that you have no rules because every university Walk into any university office in the world, and there's a million books behind the person, all these three-ring binders that tells you every legacy policy that they have, that they have to follow. So on one hand, it's really good that you have lessons that have already been learned. On the other hand, it's hidebound. No one can try anything new because everything has been sort of dictated for you. Let's talk about what's at this university that is so new. We are minority-majority. We are a second chance university for the most part. Our average age is 29 or 30 years old. Two thirds of my students have already failed at another university before they ever walked in the door. For many of them, this might even be a last chance. Wow. 
two-thirds of these students are single parents. 85% are working while they are here. They have serious issues at times that have caused them to struggle in a traditional university environment. And it's funny, universities that are traditional typically deal with traditionally aged students. In my experience, there's a lack of understanding of what is happening in people's lives that cause them to have difficulty in a university environment. And so what happens is these students who are struggling, often first-generation students, don't know where to go with problems, and students vote with their feet. So what ends up happening is is if, if you're lost or you can't figure something out, the last thing you want to do is tell somebody how much you're struggling. That's inherently embarrassing. And so it's almost stigmatizing. So people just realize that they don't know what's happening in a class. It gets worse. They stop going to that class. Eventually, they're not going to school. And no one sort of notices that it happened. It happens at high schools. It happens at colleges. And in fact, because of that, we have enormous supports in place for these students that are sort of unheard of for institutions, some of which are starting to get adopted now, I'm happy to say. So we have had always had food banks, for example, and that's typical. But the next level of thinking of it is that going to a food bank is also stigmatizing. Right. That's a real of embarrassment course. to of just course. tell somebody that you are having that much difficulty. So we try to even trick that a little bit. We have maybe 1,500 acres here on the campus that we've purchased, much of which is used by farmers. So instead of charging the farmers as tenant farmers, as you normally do, we actually ask them to take the equivalent in vegetables, whatever they've grown too many of that's not selling this year, and give that to us instead. So if you look at our main lobby at different times, there'll be just scads of vegetables out there and bushel baskets. And then we have what we call a fresh food initiative. We have all these recipes out there. We have bags. And I don't care how much money you have or don't have. What we're trying to do is teach you how to eat better by eating fresh food. But if you're poor, it just meant that you were like everybody else eating food. So it's not you being sort of marked because you needed that help. Unbelievable. When people come to us for financial aid, they're also co-screened for food stamps. We don't want these people deciding between whether or not they're paying an energy bill or whether they're going to buy food for their families. We have a diaper bank. Now, that's a strange thing for people, but if you're a young woman with kids, and again, two-thirds of our students are single parents, diapers are enormously expensive. And I've heard the old timers say, well, listen, in my day, we used cloth diapers, and so it didn't cost so much. Well, here's the deal. You use a laundromat, you're not allowed to bring diapers. Right. right, And so if you are a person living in an apartment, that's not an option for you. And if you're a person living in an apartment in an inner city, you buy your diapers not from Costco or Walmart where you're getting this giant box. You get it from the local small shop that you have there. And that place sells them only in small boxes for a fortune. That's right. That's right. And so you have this God awful situation where again, if people don't know where you're coming from, it makes it really, really, really difficult to succeed. And so these are things that are in our school store. People come in and buy them like they're buying stuff. They swipe their card like every other student, but they're on a list so that it never actually gets charged to their account. 
Incredible. And so you can do it secretly so that you're not making it awful. The other thing is that I didn't mention it, but about 70 or 80% of our students are women. And there's another thing that happens. Our students are making a difference. They're making a change in their lives that can be transformational. And when that happens, the man in the house can be threatened by that, especially more so in certain cultures. So here you have someone that's always been under the thumb of somebody that's suddenly becoming self-sufficient. And that leads to a lot of really serious issues that you wouldn't think of, domestic abuse, that these things are real. And so we have a phalanx of people that are all social workers. We also have emergency housing on the campus. So if something goes bad and someone's within a semester or two of finishing, we can't give free housing to everybody, but it means we can put somebody in a safe place until they finish. Hmm. I can go on and on. You can tell with this thing. And I want you to. I have this question that keeps coming up. Is there a model like this anywhere that you know of? Pieces of it. You don't invent everything. So you try to find things that make sense and steal them. But I don't know of anything that's quite this expansive. You know, it's also a point to be made because your guys that are listening are oftentimes in business. If you run a private college, you don't get paid by the state. And so you only get paid if someone is there making satisfactory academic progress is the legal language. And so it is frankly to our benefit if we can help these people to succeed and stay. If not, we're churning these people. If you churn these people, you don't make any money. Right, right. Quite honestly, unless you're going to a community college, they get paid by counting bodies. We only get paid if people are making progress and coming out again. Interesting. Interesting. All of our programs, by the way, all lead to some kind of job. If any one of our programs doesn't have an 80% placement rate within 90 days, it's put on a list to be pruned. It makes no sense to have things because it makes us feel good. I saw the data that you have on the website of the institutional profile, and last year it was 86% of the people were in jobs. This is more than a university. It's a calling, isn't it? I mean, there's something about you that has evolved to here. And I would love to know, how did this start? Where were you when this idea started? What were you doing that got you here? I know it's a 20-year enterprise, so go back to year one. And what did you look like and what were you doing? Well, even this being a university is the culmination of a lot of steps beforehand. Actually, this coming April, I will have been in my seat or in this organization for 40 years. 40 years. So it's only been the last 20 or 21 or two that we are a university. And even that took some time. But to explain where the motivation is even around this is that I grew up pretty poor. We were never on welfare. We didn't have the food. I remember the blocks of Velveeta cheese in the kitchen and the canned chicken or whatever the heck they had that they would feed us. I was very, very aware of money being incredibly tight. And so I was really, really very, very blessed. I have no other word to say it. If I'm getting too deep in the weeds, you know, tell me. But I remember being in fourth grade. That's the year in a public school they let you take an instrument up. 
And so I wanted to play trumpet because it seemed like that would be cool. And they didn't have any trumpets to lend out and I didn't have any money to actually rent anything. So they had a viola, which is like a little bit larger than a violin. And the strangest thing, and they said, so you're going to play the viola. And I said, you know, great. Cause they can lend me one of those. Cause after all, who's playing a viola. <laughs> and you know, there are things that you have to really give up to the fact that there is someone that looks after you. They talk about God given talent. I picked up this thing and I didn't practice it every day. I wasn't that good. Within a year, I was on TV on this viola. No way. Within two or three years, I was playing in a symphony. I started playing bass as well. And this very lost kid in a very poor and dangerous family got noticed where suddenly you have possibility. I always had money too in my pocket because I was always playing out with jobs. So even though I grew up with that background, suddenly there was always some cash around somewhere. And I did a lot of leadership stuff. There was a great resume out of high school. So it got to be the point where by the time I was going into college, I was actually a player. I was one of those people that colleges were looking to, to get in. So a great story for people just not knowing what they're working with. I remember that Williams College, which is a small school in Massachusetts, very, very well regarded, needed a violist for the Berkshire Symphony, actually. Oh. And so I was in a group of maybe 20 kids that they were heavily recruiting. So they had this deal where they called us up. I suppose they called everybody else up. They called me up and invited me to the special recruiting weekend where you lived there and you got taken around to different departments and try to get you excited about the place. So you'd come there. And so, again, I'm a poor kid with no money. I live in Long Island. I had to hitchhike to Williamstown, Massachusetts to go to Williams College because no one thought to give you a bus pass. A bus pass. And no one <laughs> thought that you really didn't have any money to get there on your own. They were just very excited to invite you like you right. had any means to get right, there. Right, right, right. A total disconnect. Yep. So I made my way up there and I had a wonderful weekend. And at the time, it's embarrassing because I'm older, but I remember that tuition was, I don't know, let's call it $5,500 a year, which is pretty funny to talk about, but that's what it was way back when. And I remember at the end of this weekend, they hustled me into this financial aid director's office and the guy said, son, we're going to give you $4,000 just right outright to come to school. How do you feel about that? And if you're brought up right, you say, yeah, that's really wonderful. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I got out of the office and said, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Apparently, I'm still short a handful of money that I still don't have. So I guess I'm going home, which is what I did, actually. Oh, my God. Again, I'd gotten into all these places. My parents had, by the way, no idea where I was applying to. I'm a first-generation person. They had not a clue about any of this stuff. I don't even know how I would bring it up to them. Of all silly things, I also got request to come to Vassar, which is that famous girls' school in upstate New York, it had turned co-ed and they were looking for competent men, frankly, because their women alumna would be upset if they had lowered standards. So I was up there. I had a great resume, had good SAT scores. And I remember going in there and the same drill, but the guy said to me, listen, we'll cover everything. You have to come up with 350 bucks. And I said, that makes sense to me. They were looking at it from my side. 
I bring up that story only because it's very real to me that you have people with potential, if they can be just told how this thing is supposed to work. So, you know, nowadays you have colleges where they expect you to do all your admissions, enrollment, financial aid, all online because it's very efficient. But for people like that, it's not very effective because yes, it works out if you know what you're doing. But all of us who have kids who sent them to school, even for me, and I'm in the field, you don't have a clue about what you're filling out because it makes no sense in any other place in the world. That's right. That's right. Being poor often makes you entrepreneurial. A lot of really smart people learn how to sell drugs or they learn how to you know, boost cars or whatever, like a lot of my friends growing up did. But after college, I needed to be teaching in order to finish a master's degree in education, and there were no jobs, so I opened up a nonprofit daycare center in Connecticut, which is how I got up here. After that, I had to find a real job. It was hard to find work. It was interesting. I had degrees, and that made it harder to find basic work. You couldn't get to work at a gas station because everyone knows you'd leave. That's, that's yeah, what they would tell that's me. that's right. You're going to leave. Right. I'm not going to hire you. And I ended up getting a job as a counselor at a business school, a proprietary business school in the uh, area. It was such a natural just to talk to people asking them what they wanted to do in their life and trying to figure out if it made sense to come here or go someplace else. It was like hand in glove and I was making money. At the time I was making, this is embarrassing, it's like late 70s, early 80s, I was making like 40,000 a year, which seemed like a ton of money. Right, right. And instead of buying a better car, which is what you do when you start making some money, I was in Hartford. So in Hartford, Connecticut at the time, banks would not give a mortgage for any building in Hartford. It was redlined because it was considered to be uh, you know, more risky. And so if you were selling a building in that situation, you knew that you were going to get a down payment from a buyer and then you're going to take back a mortgage. It's the only way the economics could work. So I started buying apartment buildings. Again, I grew up poor. You were never going to hire anybody. So you knew how to do carpentry. You knew how to do plumbing. You knew how to do electric. You were never going to call someone to come in and do that stuff because that's crazy. You fixed your own cars. You just did it. So I lived in the apartments and I was working on these things and making money still at this job in the daytime. And a school came up for sale in Hartford. It was a shell. It was, had six students that first year as I was looking at it. It was owned by this older German woman who was, always thought she would bring her daughter into it, but the daughter had cancer. So she really had to sell this thing that she had been doing for years. It primarily worked for people with disabilities. It was primarily a school that taught people that were blind and deaf and motor disabled, and it did all of its work for the state, you know, their rehabilitation offices. And so I went in there thinking I was all that, buying a school that I think cost, I don't know, $50,000 or something like that. It was exactly the opposite. She was trying to decide who was going to adopt her baby. It was not a matter of me strutting my stuff and thinking I was spending money. So at the age of 24, which is what I was at that time, I bought a proprietary school and did work for the state of Connecticut. Wow. Over time, we started subgranting, which means like being a subcontractor to a number of other places. We were subcontracting to Urban League or Puerto Rican Forum, or all these sort of groups that politically would get lots of money for training, but we'd be the trainer. And so sitting next to us in a classroom might be people coming from eight or nine different nonprofits, none of whom would talk to each other because they were highly competitive. <laughs> 
So they were fighting over the same money like mad. And people would say to me, well, Mark, you know, you're not making a lot of money there. Why don't you take it nonprofit? And the reason why is that then I would become competitive with all of my suppliers. So by not being nonprofit, we let them play in this political realm and we just did training and it grew and grew. We did finally get accredited a few years later and we started growing into branches and it got to be a thing. So I think by the age of 30, I was already a millionaire. I was making money and we were still for profit. The next real big step, and tell me if I'm just giving you too much information, but it's sort of like one of these. No, this is part of what we do. We just want you to tell your story. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. No, tell it. So what ended up happening is we have our students coming out of these programs and we get them all jobs and they weren't all disabled now. Now there were all kinds of people coming. And then we tell them what you really need to do is go back to school, that we are getting you a job, but you really need to go back to college and get a degree so you can start moving up in your jobs. Well, because we're a proprietary school, the credits did not transfer to colleges, uh, at least in this state. Right. So you would have these situations where people would finish up a two-year program in business and go to college, and they'd start from 101 again. It would be the first class again. And finally, I had this guy working for me. His name was Carol Grisetti. I still remember him. He was a West Indian guy. And he was teaching an accounting class for us and was also teaching it at the local community college. Same curriculum, same syllabi, same book, same person teaching the same exact class. And I met with the president of the community college. And I said, listen, we always talk about, you know, getting equivalents to offer credit. Here's the same guy teaching the same class for both of us. Why can't those students get credit? And the guy said, well, if they take the final in the class, we'll give them credit. I said, oh, you know, that's fair. I'm okay with that. But they have to pay the tuition. Oh. And I said, okay, this is not about academics. This is about getting more money out of the same poor kid who's already gone through this once. And at that day, which was in the early 90s, I said, well, if the coin of the realm was to be a college, then damn it, we're going to go be a college. Jim Collins has his book, Good to Great, where they talk about BHAGs, Big, yeah. Hairy, Audacious Goals. Yes. Well, that was our Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals because nobody in Connecticut had shifted from a non-college to a college in over 40 years. There had been no new colleges that came up. So no one in state service knew how to go about this. No one knew if it was even possible. And no one certainly wanted a proprietary to be doing it, but that's what we were. And so we would put in the applications and would bring them up and they would tell us that we were crazy. We hired consultants who said this is never going to happen. You know, they've talked to people and just this is not going to happen. It took six years. And every time they slapped us down again, we would buff up the application for whatever reason they tried to give us and come back in again and do it all over again. Now, that's an entrepreneur characteristic. You mentioned it. Something about being poor can turn you into an entrepreneur. I do have a number of clients that have a similar story. And there you are. And you can get slapped once, twice, doesn't matter. And you keep coming back. And that relentless pursuit is the hallmark of an entrepreneur. <laughs> and so <laughs> 40 years later... Here you are. That's just an amazing story. An amazing story. Do you think people in the university have any sense of that story? Parts of it later, because it becomes sort of like one of those 
the university is very large now. We have 3,500 students and we're about to buy the University of Bridgeport, which is another 4,500 students. This is a massive entity. Our combined budget would be a quarter billion dollars a year. So it's sort of a legendary story of about this school that I started that had six students in it. So people do know pieces of it. A major thing that I always have to throw in here because it's important, at least to me probably, is after we became a college, we stopped needing to be proprietary because we stopped being competitive with those nonprofit agencies. So I always believed that someday I would take this thing I created and I would make it nonprofit, in part because my truth, I'm not casting any aspersions, but I don't trust the big chain operations in higher education because my own sense of it is that if you have a higher education institution that has stock, your stockholders want to see a profit every quarter. The truth is, is in higher education, they do have a cycle, but there are multi-year cycles where you have years which are, which are growing it properly. And then there's years which you're not going to grow so fast. On the growing years, the stockholders are happy. On the non-growing years, stockholders don't want to hear about it. And so if you're under pressure to grow when the economy or whatever the situation is, is telling you you shouldn't, a private owner can make that decision. A stockholder can't. And so that's when, in my experience, they make mistakes. Yeah. And it's understandable when you think about it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wall Street drives the agenda in the quarterly three-month increments, and that's it. That's it. And I always feel bad for those CEOs at times. You're stuck in that spot where you have the investors on the one side and your board pounding you. And then the CEO comes out of that. And then he's supposed or she's supposed to go back to the company and create this awesome culture and get everybody inspired and motivated. And I think it takes somebody special to be standing in the middle of a grinder as they grind. It's exactly what it is. You're you're so right, Kevin. And so in this case here, I always felt that if I ever passed on and this went to my kids, the money is so damn seductive that it's one of those things where you're supposed to take that money and then go live on a beach somewhere. And then you have your millions and millions of dollars. And at that point, as a for-profit college in Connecticut, which is a black swan, there was lots of opportunity to sell the place and make lots of money. And I didn't want that to happen. And I was fine with that, but I didn't want it to happen 20 years from now when I'm gone also. So I made the decision and, you know, I've been YPO, so I'm in a forum. And so I sort of have that opinion and it got to be, well, if you're not just fooling yourself, if you're not full of bull, then pull the trigger. If you really mean that, then what are you waiting for? And it was true. So in 2002, I applied to the IRS to give away 90% of my assets. In 2004, they approved it, but lots of controls on it. Didn't have a management contract. I know they play games nowadays. That was before, I guess, we didn't figure it out. But my kids down and say, I don't don't know what your concept is of your birthright, but I'm about to give it all away. I'm okay with it, but are you guys okay with this? (laughs) Because it means that, you know, you're not going to be seeing this outcome. I give them credit. They were brilliant with it. And in 2004, this became a nonprofit entity. I have a board who I serve at their pleasure. There are stories where people do this and six months later, they get fired by the same board. 
And so since that time, now you know, it's 20 years since, I get paid the equivalent of whatever the uh, average salary is of people in my position so that I can't be over inured is the word that IRS uses. And so it's been a fascinating project, but it's been very karmic because since then we've built a campus on the Connecticut River that I'm looking at as I'm speaking to you. I have built almost a quarter billion dollars in buildings here. I have no debt to speak of. We've grown massively. We have enormous reputation, incredible culture. By doing something like this, it does give you moral authority. You know, suddenly yeah, yeah. people suddenly will, will say, okay, well, he's not asking us to sacrifice in any way that he hasn't. So it has become one of those great stories. So it's an interesting thing now. Now I'm older in my career. I'm later in the career. It's fascinating because I don't pretend to know any more than I knew truly 40 years ago. What's interesting right now is that I get more credit for what I know now, whether I know it or not, <laughs> almost as much as I didn't get any credit for knowing any of this stuff, you know, when I was, when I was much younger. So it was funny because you know me as you know me, Kevin. We're goofy friends that have a great sense of mission, but also a great joyfulness in just how we approach life. Absolutely. But it's interesting to me how if I say things, people write them down. I hear people, you know, speaking to each other. You know how when you have a three-year-old and you keep on, every time you give them something, you say thank you. And then after a while, you hope that they pick up to say thank you right. by themselves. Yep, yep. And the first time you see it, it's like, oh, great, like it's stuck. <laughs> I have that same experience in this place. You know, little things. People just work here, open doors for each other. Someone asks a question about where they should go. Someone gets off their butt and walks them over to where they got to go next. People out on the campus pick up papers when they see them instead of walk past them. There is such a sense of mission and culture here that is incredibly precious and is mentioned by anybody who walks in the door. And it, we're not a faith-based institution. We are just what we are. We are a community-based organization, but there's such a sense of mission that is palpable. Yeah. I talk a lot in my work about culture, especially in my client work. And I can't tell you the number of times I've watched big posters in the lobby and coffee cups and our values and this and that. I could ask the CEO, what are they? And too small a percentage would say it because it's in their heart. So to me, Peter Drucker said it, the definition of culture, it's the way we do it around here. Yeah, uh, it's a great way to put it. And that speaks to you. I, you're a pretty humble guy. I've known that anyway, and now it's like cemented because I didn't know as much about your story as I do now. And that kind of humility is something that casts some kind of glow around you that affects other people. And that's what you were describing. That's the culture. It's not the things you said so much. It's just who you are and what you do. And people notice and people see it. And I think if there's a legacy for you, that's it. You get to be you. And that move of selling 90% of your assets like that, that's a monster. 
I don't know of anyone who has a story like that one. As you know, the world you and I have worked in for a long time in the YPO world, we come into contact with a lot of net worth, a lot of people of affluence, and the money, it can change people. You've seen it, I've seen it, and you took some radical steps. And I just got done talking to a legacy business where there's already lawsuits happening among the siblings. Absolutely. You're exactly right. And you just remove that in one fell swoop for your kids. Yeah. There are things you have prevented from happening that were so natural because of the way humans are that it was as much an act of love as anything I've ever seen. And it took big kahunas to do it. That's a bold move. Thank God for your forum holding your feet to the fire. Well, what's interesting too is if I talk to people in business and I say that story, they think I'm really eccentric, if anything. You know, it's one of those things that, that you do that's really sort of out there. What I found fascinating is the skepticism that came from like the nonprofit sector and the state people. It's What's like, he up to? What's he up <laughs> Exactly. It's like, isn't this something that you would support? Doesn't this make sense to you? This is what you're telling people. I had one person in state services said to me, Mark, you're too smart to have done this. I don't know what you're pulling, but if I spend the rest of my career, I'm going to figure out what it is. Oh my God. That tells us more about that person than anything else. <laughs> well, it's funny. And those people actually, when you're small, can hurt you. The funny thing is, in business, if you're competing, it's an honest competition where I'm going to say, you know, listen, I think I make a better product. I think we run a better company. We're going to try to beat you up. And there's an honesty about that. With nonprofits, it doesn't happen that way. They can't be that honest. It's always like something that you can't argue about that happens behind closed doors. So it's all done in some manner. It's sort of like this quiet campaign that goes on. A stealth strategy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I found it really fascinating that my for-profit friends got it. My nonprofit friends did not get it at all. They got suspicious. So when you look back at the whole story and you're in a position of a baby elder, you're not old enough to be a super elder, but you're a baby elder what do you tell the grandkids, you know, when you're speaking of a couple of life lessons, what comes right out off the tip of your tongue about life lessons? And it's funny, there's a flood of them that come to mind. As you know, when you put anyone in that position, I know I tell students all the time that one, you have to live a life of service. There is incredible responsibility if you can do things to do them for someone. And the real trick is not that really. The trick is don't wait till you're big enough to do it. People will say, okay, well, sure you do that because you can. Right. No, actually, no matter where you are, there's something that makes sense. I don't care if you're coaching a team or, or being a big brother or, you know, there are ways in which you can touch the world around you in, in a way that elevates everybody and don't wait till you think you're a philanthropist to do that because it's the wrong way to look at it. I tell them how important it is to be honest. It's funny how, how is honesty like a lost art? 
<laughs> I still so deeply believe that if you make a deal with somebody and shake hands or figuratively shake hands, then your word is your bond. I've been in business long enough where there are people for whom it's an element of negotiation, but if there's an opportunity to go back on your word and gain some value from that, that people do that without a lot of thought about it. It's a ploy. I think you have to live love in your life. It's a funny thing that I am head of this giant organization and I talk to people about love. It's like the dirtiest word in business. It's like somehow there's something so squishy and meaningless about that, but what the hell are you here for? Amen. Amen. So that you should be able to do some of what we do because it feels right. It's a very funny thing because I really deeply feel that there is a sense of karma in the world that, you know, no matter what your belief system is, that if you're doing the right things, first of all, you'll know it. Second of all, you're not going to get credit for it like you should. But it does matter. It matters over a long period of time. And you're right. When you do that, people will be skeptical because the world is skeptical. Everyone seems to have an angle. So everyone is trying to sell something. And you can acknowledge that. But if you just go that way, it makes all the difference, especially nowadays when people are so polarized. Oh, it's an epidemic of polarization and division. I don't know how we're going to come back. I don't know, but the only choice I have whenever something happens that is bothersome and hurts me is that you have to love harder. Mm, agreed. And somehow that will triumph. It is such a skeptical and a cynical world that it makes good things shine even brighter. Absolutely. I'm so happy you're saying this. A couple of podcasts ago, a YPOer by the name of Keith Alper came on the show and we talked about his book and he wrote a book called From Like to Love. And he spoke of the same thing. And I'm hoping, I don't know who will listen, but I got a good instruction from my podcast producer. He said, don't worry about listeners, just have a great conversation with your guest. And so that's what I've been trying to do. But in the time that I'm with you, I can sort of confirm and affirm what you're saying because I've met others who also get it. And I wouldn't mind being known for that myself. I have a whole bunch of clients that have been on the roster for 10 years and we say I love you on a routine basis. And it might be odd the first time it comes out, but it comes out sooner now because I just let it rip. You know, I, I feel it. And everything I've known about you is absolutely loving. You have that and you're that kind of guy. I'm blessed to have you in my friendship category. So I always do this at the end of my podcast. I always ask the guests to tell us if you stood where you are now, at the age you are now, you can tell us that if you want. Look down and see yourself at the age of 23-ish. And what advice would you give or have given to that 23-year-old that you wish you had had back then? 
Great question. I'm 65. Uh, at least I'll be 65 next year when those that are good at math saw the 40 and the 24. You know, the advice I would give is not to be afraid of following your heart. There's always been a compromise in my head about all the responsibilities that you have, making sure that people have a paycheck, making sure like this, there's this worry about it. And sometimes the worry over the years has eclipsed everything else because it, it's so, so real. I would really want to put my hand on that person's shoulder and let them know to slow down enough to appreciate that it's going to be okay to really savor those days rather than survive them. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, listen, Mark, thank you so much. You've done more than I had imagined and I already imagined it was going to be awesome. <laughs> we exceeded that. Tell people if they want to take a look at Goodwin University, what the website is so that they might be intrigued about what you have to offer. Sure. It's www.goodwin, G-O-O-D-W-I-N dot E-D-U. Pretty simple. Excellent. As you are, I know in your life too, I am here of service. So if, if anyone wants to reach out, ask a question, ask anything they want, and I'll feel very blessed to get that question as you do and get back Amen, to them. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, thank you again. And this is going to wrap up another episode of Sheer Clarity. I appreciate anyone who's tuned in. I would recommend that you visit Sheer Clarity at SheerClarity.com. You can also find episodes on all of the popular platforms. And you can also check out jkevinmcq.com to hear and learn more about me. And that will wrap up another episode. And again, Mark Scheinberg, thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend.